0: In 2020, DeFi summer was the biggest narrative and it led a lot of people to make a lot of money. Could 2024 be the year of NFT-Fi summer? I think so. First, we've got billions of dollars in real-world assets coming on chain in the form of NFTs, from tokenized watches to real estate to Pokemon cards and so much more. And second, we finally got permissionless protocols which are coming to the market with lending products they're able to offer better liquidity for your NFTs. In today's episode, I'm joined by one of these NFT5 protocols, MetaStreet, its co-founder, Connor Moore. We talk about the NFT liquidity problem and how MetaStreet has developed a unique new primitive to turn loans into liquid tokens. We talk about the launch of MetaStreet's points program, Ascend, where you can farm their upcoming airdrop and learn how to access 10 to 18% yield. We also talk about why the new ERC-404 token standard is such a big deal and how MetaStreet is thinking about using it as a governance token standard for their upcoming airdrop. If you care about NFTs, yield, blast, ERC-404s, and or points farming, then this is the episode for you. GMGM, welcome to Web3 Academy, your one trusted source to capitalize, on the next big phase of the internet. We make sense of an on-chain world in constant transformation. I'm Jay Bird, and I believe that NFTFi is going to change the world. GM, Connor, welcome to Web3 Academy. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Stoked to have you, man. NFTFi is not something we've talked a ton about, to be honest, on our podcast. We talk lots about yield and how you can gain more yield in, Web3. We talk a little bit about DeFi. We've talked about Blast. We've talked about points farming. And MetaStreet is really at the intersection of so many of these things. ERC of 404 is too. We're going to talk about how you guys are doing that later in the show. But before we jump into all of that, just take us back to maybe the beginning. Why did you initially start MetaStreet and what is the vision and the reason for you guys building this product?
1: I started uh, my career in investment banking and so did David, who's one of the two other co-founders. We actually worked at Deutsche Bank together. Um, I sublet his apartment when I was interning just a while ago. And then after we had that experience, David went into crypto full time. I went on and worked in traditional finance, worked in private equity, did a bunch of stuff around real estate. So we were securitizing big pools of asset backed securities, which is relevant for this story. And in 2021, NFTs are going parabolic, everyone's talking about them and primarily thinking about them as like art and collectibles, which is a valid market in in its own right and like also deserves a a financing arm. But the bigger opportunity here obviously is like looking beyond art and collectibles and thinking about the NFT, the ERC721 contract as just the real asset equivalent for crypto that the ERC-20 is the financial asset. And so what I mean by that is ERC-20s are like stocks, currencies, commodities, right? ERC-721s are real assets. They're the, the, the traditional finance equivalent would be like real estate, equipment, capital, things like that. And that market requires its own debt market behind it. And that debt market for real assets does not look like the debt market for financial assets. So like financial assets have margin accounts, you know, you trade with leverage, your crypto equivalent is Abe compound. Well, real assets don't, they don't operate like that. And it's primarily because they don't trade frequently. So you have different mechanisms. And so we had this experience in our previous lives working with those debt markets. And to us, the opportunity to create that on chain, do it permissionlessly, take advantage of all the composability aspects of DeFi and ultimately just like enter this blue ocean. It was a huge opportunity. Right. And it helped that also you had this huge art and collectibles market. So you didn't have to just start from, you know, total, you know, black box, but you, you had existing collateral that you could create lending markets for. So that was why we started the project. This was in 2021. At the time, when we started street there was ten million dollars of cumulative lending volume ever in the history of NFTs. <laughs> <laughs> so it was pretty early, and there really the only design was like a very simple peer-to-peer contract. And so we basically have spent the last two years iterating on that design. You know, obviously many new players have come into the space, many new ideas, and the whole concept of financial markets that support NFTs. Has started to really mature over the last couple of years. And now we personally, Metastreet's done about $150 million of, of lending volume. The industry as a whole is like north of, I think, $4 billion of lending volume. And this is even still before we've gotten to the more mature, you know, versions of collateral, which I think are also starting to come with like, especially with this real world asset push and and other things mm-hmm. like that. That was kind of like our. Our journey leading up to starting MetaStreet. And then we can get into like what we've been up to for the last two years and all of that. But that's kind of the background. So far, NFTs have really, as you
0: said, only been used for digital art and collectibles, maybe membership passes too, a little bit. But uh, they haven't yet reached their full potential. I think not even close to their no. full potential. And so there's this coming wave of capital that's going to come in and as you said they need the ability to have more lending more financialization of those nfts and that doesn't exist who who just so we know who are the you mentioned that there's about four billion in lending who are the
1: major players in that space right now there's a couple of funds it's primarily individuals though. Early adopters, yeah, people who already, you know, view the value of CryptoPunks, for example, as like being pretty stable, and so therefore they're they're comfortable participating in this market. There are a few funds. Um, in, Indigo is one. Dialectic. These these guys have done pretty sizable positions in the space. Um, but but beyond them, it's primarily individuals. Yeah.
0: Okay. Okay. Let's jump forward now. That's the sort of backstory from a few years ago when you guys first built that. Bring us up to today on what you guys have been focused on and where you're at with Metastreet now.
1: Yeah. So the protocol design looks a lot like the securitization market, debt securitization market. So what we basically have done is created a pooled lending protocol that uses tranches, to try to make the the protocol more efficient. And going back to what we were talking about a second ago with ave being for financial assets and metastreet being for crypto's version of real assets, generally there that that has like various permutations of implications in terms of what the right design is for that lending market. And so with something like ERC20s, you have a lot of liquid spot market. And so you can liquidate these tokens fairly easily. And so most lending designs for ERC twenties revolve around a liquidation mechanism. Mm -hmm. But if you, again, go back to like our real estate comparison, you don't have a liquidation mechanism in your mortgage, right? That's not how that works. (laughs) And, And the reason is because that would be kind of predatory. The reason is because you don't have a liquid spot market. Houses aren't selling every second of every day, right? Okay. So if you don't have that, then how do you create an efficient lending market? Well, the way you do it is you allow people to represent their risk tolerance via these tranches within a pool of capital. And so if I can say I'm willing to lend up to you know, 10 ETH and you say, okay, well, I'm willing to lend up to 20 ETH. Now we have two people who are participating in the same loan, but have different risk tolerances and are working cooperatively. You're able to benefit from your position in a higher risk because you're going to get more interest income. And I'm going to benefit because I get to participate in that loan still, but at a much lower risk threshold. That's like obviously should be create a more efficient market. So we basically use that concept and applied it to the entire protocol. So the way the protocol works is you have pools of capital that have these tranches in them, and then those pools are paired with NFT platforms. And the protocol is entirely permissionless. So I can create a pool of capital for any NFT contract that exists and pair that with any ERC-20. And that's very important because like, if you have these whitelisting mechanisms or you have voting by a DAO, fundamentally that really limits like what where you can go in the future, how you can grow. That's basically how the protocol works. And we've iterated on this a bunch over the last couple of years and have gotten to a place now where it's fully permissionless, it doesn't rely on oracles and it has a dynamic interest rate that ultimately makes the capital, like sh- should make the capital as efficient as possible.
0: Right. Yeah. Lo- I love the focus. I mean, look, we have a natural problem that I think everybody can see here, which is that there's a liquidity issue with NFTs. I mean, maybe you could argue that there wasn't a liquidity I- issue during the NFT poll run of 2021 at that point, Blur going crazy, you know, okay, sure, that's much more liquid, but we definitely have this liquidity issue and you guys are coming in saying, hey, we need to unlock more capital efficiency and we built the protocol in order to do that and you've done it quite smartly, I think, where the lender can choose their risk appetite, which really allows them to have choice in the way that, you know, how much yield do you want? What are you seeing in terms of the yield that people are getting from participating and using the
1: protocol right now. Yeah. And so and this is maybe one of the most interesting things like for your listeners is this market has the highest yields in crypto and it has for the last two years. And the reason is because it's really laborious. Like most previous to MetaStreet existing, the only way for you to really participate in this market was to go and originate loans one by one against like maybe sometimes assets that were as, you know, worth as little as $5,000. So most people don't have time for that, right? So it's pretty laborious and it is fundamentally more risk than creating a uh, money market lending like Aave. The way that the Aave market works, you are never ever supposed to have a default, right? Like if there were to be bad debt on the protocol, people view that as a failure of the protocol but that's not how most debt markets work. Typically a lender is taking on the understanding that they are taking on possible risk. And the way that they make their money is by being a good underwriter and then making more interest income than they lose from defaults, right? So this product is really just supporting that kind of lending, which is the most, in the traditional sense, it's the much larger side of the house and crypto is just unfamiliar with it because to date, mainly it's been a margin account for leverage trading, right? So it's just like a different product. But ultimately what that means is the yields here are much, much higher than what you could get, you know, depositing into a money market because you're ultimately taking more risk. And so across our platform, we typically see yields in the kind of the teens, ETH on ETH yields or stable coins as well. ETH ETH or stable coins in the teens, but across the market as a whole, like it can be much higher than that. Depending on the collateral type, you'll see North of twenty or even forty percent yields. Wow, wow, that's incredible! And
0: now, as you said, not only is there some risk to this, there is uh, a financial knowledge that someone needs to have. We're not going to all of a sudden see the average DGEN who maybe is just farming tokens, but maybe doesn't have like a financial background or tradfi background. All of a sudden, start to take on lending and participate in this type of NFT buy? Or do you think that's coming? Like, where do you, who are your users now? And do you think that it will go more mainstream in the future, or is it going to continue to be more the TradFi people that are moving into crypto who are seeing this new way to access capital?
1: Big picture, like long-term, I think definitely the latter, but right now we're seeing a lot of the typical crypto users onboarded to the platform and they, I think there's two main innovations that we've developed with this protocol. The first is just the, the way the polls work with these like tranches. Borrowers get one offer, but the lenders are split into many tranches. The second is that then the lenders can tokenize or are instantly tokenizing their positions when they deposit. So I deposit ETH and I mint my ETH CryptoPunk LP position. We call them liquid credit tokens. So, with the liquid credit token, now you've introduced the concept of secondary market liquidity for these lenders. And so it starts to look more like what a typical DeFi user is comfortable with because there's this presence of a secondary market where I can trade out of my position. So, we'll get into Ascend, but we just launched Ascend, it's our points campaign. And in the last 24 hours, We've gotten our TVL is now over 25 million, and we have about $3 million of curve LP behind those positions. And so, what that means is, even though the, these depositors are depositing into a pool that will then possibly be locked into longer duration loans, the lender never bears that duration risk because they can trade out of it on, on secondary market. And so, the more, the, the deeper that liquidity is for the secondary market, the more you like can think of this as just a normal crypto asset normal defi token and actually like for people who are crypto native the comparison i'd make here is lido's staked eth before you could redeem so if you remember lido was creating all this staked eth where people were staking but this was before you could redeem your staked eth before the beacon chain merge happened And how did that work? I mean, those positions were fully illiquid and yet staked ETH had a secondary LP position that was paired with ETH and staked ETH and you could trade it in and out of that. Now, in times of higher concern about the longevity of LIDO or whatever, you saw some volatility around that pricing, but ultimately there was a market. And as soon as you had that market, what happened? Staking rates went parabolic because now you have secondary market liquidity. I don't have to take on this duration risk. And be locked into this underlying position. And so that's something that we're really excited about because I'm hopeful that it will bring a lot of capital into the space. And ultimately, it's just a much, if we can bring capital into the space through our protocol, you will see that people have a much easier way to participate in this market and not be originating mm-hmm. $5,000 loans every day and managing all this stuff and having an operational nightmare for
0: that. Yeah, these liquid credit tokens that you guys have launched is. It's a huge innovation, I think. And this idea of making these loans tradable and making them liquid is you're not stuck in your position. And I think the main thing that stands out to me is you're making them composable with other DeFi apps and other tokens. And that is going to just lead to way more efficiencies. I think these are the type of innovations that gradual and then all of a sudden type thing, right? It feels like this is one of those moments. Tell us a little bit more about, I know you raised $25 million recently, you created these liquid credit tokens, you launched this, and now we have Ascend, this points program that you guys have launched. Lead us into maybe Ascend and how people can participate in that points program.
1: Yeah. So the 25 mil is like our total fundraise. I saw some people reporting that we just raised 25 but it's our total like cumulative funding okay so yeah i think first i want to touch on the composability part that you were talking about and i think the reason this is so important is because fundamentally this is the advantage that DeFi has over tradfi and anytime you see something novel come into the space but then have the team say we're going to use a permission side chain or you know everyone has to kyc the log in, or whatever it's like You're missing the point. I mean, the, the real benefit here is that this is all permissionless and composable. We should all strive to build things that are permissionless and composable because that's our advantage over traditional finance. And so with this product, creating the LCTs gives us the ability, like we were just talking about, we have an AMM on curve with $3 million in it. I didn't call Mr. Curve, I didn't call (laughs) Mesh to get approval for that, right? There's another platform called Ajna that does permissionless borrowing and lending. We actually created uh, a borrowing lending pool. So you can post your LCTs as collateral and borrow Rapsick teeth against them. You know, so, and all of this stuff, you don't have to get approvals or sign-off because it's composable. That composability for us also goes the other direction. So on the actual origination side, so primarily what we've been talking about is the depositor side you know, how the deposits work and tokenizing the deposits in, into LCTs. But on the origination side, we also have composability. So all of the peer to peer lending platforms, Arcade, NiftyFi, X2, Y2, these are all peer to peer platforms where you have someone post a singular NFT as collateral, borrow from a singular lender. They actually create promissory note NFTs. Those promissory note NFTs are like the key to unlock that loan that the lender holds. And we can ingest those as well. So on the borrower side, we actually can also aggregate across all these peer-to-peer lending platforms. And we can only do that because the peer-to-peer platforms are also composable. That's very special, right? And that's kind of a beautiful thing that happens in, in crypto and DeFi that doesn't happen elsewhere. I don't have to have a good relationship with any of these platforms for this to work. It just works. So, okay, so where are we going now? We have spent the better part of two years iterating on this product design and now we're kind of getting into the point where the protocol is fully permissionless and we want to get as many users to the platform and really start to proliferate metastreet as just a piece of infrastructure for all of the future tokenized assets that come on chain we should definitely cover this at some point too with like these watch platforms that are tokenizing watches or domain names yeah let's let's over. talk about this now actually this is I
0: think this is a good A great point is pointing out all these use cases for what are all the tokenized assets that are coming on chain.
1: Yeah. So again, like because the platform's permissionless, we've built this thing to be sort of functional with whatever comes next, you know, as long as it's a 721 and or a 404. So with these, this watch platform we've been working with, they're tokenizing watches and I want to be able to create a borrowing and lending market for those watches. And this has already seen some some level of product market fit just within NFT finance generally. What One of the most fascinating things to me though is these guys that are tokenizing the watches, a big part of their value proposition to watch dealers is the fact that they can access a global lending market in Silly true. and borrow against them. And that didn't exist two years ago. So two years ago, if you'd said, "Why are you tokenizing watches?", you'd have been—you wouldn't had a good answer. There would be no answer. Right? It didn't make sense. I mean, it's like, "Oh, you can maybe have some marginal benefit in how fast you can trade these things," but it wasn't as big of an advantage. And we've seen this with domain names, intellectual property, land. There's a platform called Fabrica Land that's trying to tokenize actual plots of land. So there's a lot of these projects in the pipeline. You know, this isn't hypothetical. These are companies that have raised funding to build build this stuff out. And all of those platforms are going to hopefully be tapping into this global liquidity layer. And my hope is that we can have Metastreet supporting pools for people borrowing against their CryptoPunks, their 404s, their watches, their plots of land. And all of those participants don't know that there are any of these other pools that exist. They're just using it for their own specific use cases. So I'm very excited about that, you know, and yeah, I think this represents the evolution of the 721 contract in general, you see a lot less talk about like the next wave of PFPs and a lot more talk about RWAs, about gaming assets and and the like, which feels like the natural progression of us exiting sort of the prehistoric version of this timeline and into like some more interesting use cases from here.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that. I don't think uh, everybody who listens to this show knows that our thoughts on PFPs as long-term assets, like sure, there is value in art and that is one thing, but PFPs were a, I don't know, maybe an unfortunate first use case for NFTs. Look, it brought a lot of hype and it was a lot of fun, but as you said, there is way more real world assets that have tremendous value to be brought on chain and have access to these markets watches just being one of many examples. We're not yet seeing the forest through the trees yet. And this is why I think a lot of people get caught up on NFTs. They try to describe them. They try to describe what is an ERC 721. And there's just so few use cases right now. That they haven't, we haven't yet been able to really see the tremendous potential of this, which I think goes so far beyond what any of us even realize in this current moment. Like, I think the future is, we, we can't even imagine it.
1: Yeah. And, it, you know, the way we think about it is ERC20s are uniform things and ERC721s are unique things. So, wherever you can take the word thing to mean something else, like what specific thing we are talking about. That's how broad this is. And sometimes we talk to people who say, oh, you know, you guys are tokenized or you're uh, lending to NFTs, but you also want to lend to real world assets or other, other things that aren't NFTs. And the answer is they're thinking of PFPs when they say that, yeah. but they're talking about the same thing. It's going to be a ERC 721 contract regardless. So as long as you are supporting, are you creating a lending market that supports unique assets? versus uniform assets, which are two fundamentally different designs, then kind of like the world is your oyster. I mean, you can take that in any direction you want. And again, it's not up to me even. It's up to whatever that tokenized asset platform is that wants to do that. Okay, so you're building
0: this... I mean, God, I'm getting so bullish on Street as we go through this episode. You're building this you know, underlying layer for NFT5, for NFT lending, it goes so far beyond it. It's so interesting. Yeah, most people just think about NTs as PFPs. It goes so far beyond that into the future. Let's talk about, you just launched Ascend Your Points program prior to the release of your token, MSTR. Tell us about Ascend. How can users get involved? How can they farm it? Tell us maybe about the integrations. You have some unique partners that you're working with this on. Lots to unravel here, so I'll, I'll let you sort of jump in.
1: Yeah. So Ascend is a three month long points campaign that was important to us to not drive things on into perpetuity, which I think people get frustrated by. So there's no that, you know, the, the, that concept of like dilution um, because points are running for forever and all that doesn't apply here. And basically it's just, uh, it's everything we've talked about. I mean, it's the same core architecture, but it's just in a very, very kind of gamified, simplified experience. And users are earning points by depositing into lending towers. Those lending towers have obviously, you know, steps to them, and that's kind of representative of of the tranches within the pool. The users can earn kind of this base interest of 10 to 17% yield. And then they get their points on top of that. They mint these liquid credit tokens, and they can supply those onto Curve and LP them and earn additional yield from the Curve LP. They can borrow against them on Ajna, which is the permissionless ERC 20 lending platform and continue to, to loop that position. And then, like you said, over the next three months, we also have a number of partnerships that we'll be rolling out. And because the LCT itself is tradable and composable. Our users will be able to basically double dip and rehypothecate their funds and deploy them elsewhere throughout crypto. So, we're going to have these available on Blast, as well as one of the AMMs on Blast, which is Thruster. And then there's another platform called Juice, which is like a yield amplification platform to basically try to farm more points. So, it's, you know, we've called it a point centipede. It's a lot of, it, but you know, the goal here, right, is like to give users as many bytes at the Apple as possible and be able to use their money elsewhere as much as possible. One thing that I think is fairly novel with this concept of using LCTs is it gives the ability to move the value of an NFT to a layer two without moving the NFT. Interesting. So the way to think about that, right, is... If you have a loan against an NFT, maybe it's not 100% of the value, but it could be up to maybe 70% of the value. And now I can take that token and move it up to an L2. Most NFT holders do not like the idea of moving their NFT to an L2 because they just worry about hacks and you know provenance risk and all this stuff. But that's a lot of money and it's about $14 billion on L1. And none of the L2s have done a great job of creating kind of their own native NFT communities. And so this is kind of an opportunity. It's like you buy a house in Ohio and you get a, you know, a mortgage from a bank, but then ultimately who ends up dealing with that mortgage, you know, it gets securitized and it's traded every day on the New York Stock Exchange or the it's traded in New York as a bond. Right. So, so like same concept applies here. You've got this NFT that is locked into a loan on L1, but now I can mint this LCT token. I can take it over to Blast and do some farming there. I could take it to another L2 and so on. So I think that's something that will unlock a lot of value and drive a lot of TVL up to these L2s, which they obviously want.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting. We will make sure to put a link in our show notes to You guys put out a great thread today. We're recording this about just short of a week before this episode comes out. So if you're listening to this, Ascend would have been out for a few days, uh, but we'll put a link where you guys can uh, learn more about Ascend and all the details uh, and how you can participate. I got to give you a shout out on the uh, three-month timeline and really focusing on not this like endless dilution. There's been so many projects that have just had no timeline on their points program no timeline and you just end up you end up with so many users getting so confused and so lost and so well well done to put the timeline on it and to make it simple that'll hopefully lead more people to participate
1: yeah i mean we're users ourselves right so we're familiar with the um the market's opinion on those things yeah <laughs> We don't want things to get drawn out. You know, I, I know people are trying to get a token and we want to just run the points campaign in a tight and timely fashion.
0: Yeah, I love it. Okay. You mentioned ERC four oh fours earlier. That's a narrative that has really taken off recently. I mean, it's an unofficial token standard which was launched by Pandora, I think like two weeks ago, roughly. So it's quite new. And you guys are already jumping on board and using ERC-404s. How are you using them? Maybe actually before we talk about how you're using them, what are your thoughts on ERC-404s? Why do you think this is an important token standard and why do you think uh, it's going to be
1: used by others? So I think it, it took off because for as long as NFTs have existed, people have tried to fractionalize them mm. and they want that ERC-20 trading volume that, that you don't get on NFTs. It's never taken off. And the reason has always been because the approaches have been taking existing 721s and then tokenizing them. And that requires, like even though it might seem like a small step, the incremental friction in UX to do that is really high. You have to get all these people that bought these NFTs to go and do this. I mean, they might just not do it, right? And there's nothing you can do to stop them. So we've seen that like NFTX was one, Tessera was another. NFTX, you know, you would go on NFTX's CryptoPunk pool. It just wasn't good execution. It wasn't liquid enough. And so it never really took off. And then you have 404 come out. And the reason that 404 has taken off while these others haven't is very simple. The only reason is because from day one, the second you create the NFT, you have this liquid token pair and that, that difference in UX is, it may seem small, but it's huge. And so as a result, all these people got so excited and you saw a bunch of these projects launch over the last couple of weeks and it remains to be seen like what kind of staying power they, they obviously have. Mm-hmm. I will say that the one thing that the 404 does not do is it does not maintain uniqueness of token ID. So if I earn a 404 NFT, I don't get the same, the same NFT back that takes away a lot of what the NFT contract standard does best. So for example, at first I thought maybe, you know, you could do a lot of interesting things with RWAs here. I'm starting to think you probably can't because I need to be able to redeem that one NFT for that one RWA connection. If I can't do that, it really kind of diminishes the value there. But I think so far, the way that people have thought about it generally and it's and logically is I'm taking NFTs and I'm turning them into ERC-20s and I'm creating liquidity for ERC-20s. What we found most interesting about this, just selfishly, is the other direction. So taking ERC-20s and turning them into NFTs. And obviously the reason that we like that is because we support NFT lending, not ERC-20 lending. Mm -hmm. So if you can take ERC-20s and turn them into NFTs and have uniform asset sizing for that, then that starts to open up a lot of potential for just the TAM of our as it exists today so that's great i'm happy about that and we want to support these 404 projects and we are actively trying to support these 404 projects give them leverage on our on our platform the thing that we have been experimenting even more with within the context of our own governance and i'm not sure this is something we'll implement or not but it's it's something that you could do is the idea of applying different governance power to different nft ids i'll explain more you may be familiar with the concept of dual class shares which is having like class a and class b shares within like publicly traded companies so facebook did this this was something that facebook is very well known for because zuckerberg owns 90 percent of the class b shares those class b shares have 10 to 1 voting power over class a shares and that basically just means that zuckerberg has total control over the path of the company it does not mean that his shares have a different economic value. They don't get like more dividends, you know, nothing like that. I mean, for all intents and purposes, the economic value is the same. It's just the governance different. I think this is really interesting in the context of 404s because every time you burn an NFT and mint a new one, you create a new token ID that's one. It increments by one each time. And so what you could do with the 404 standard in the context of a governance token is you could actually create the concept of dual class shares. So you could have class A, class B shares where NFT IDs 1 through 100 are the class B shares and NFT IDs 100 through 1000 are the class A shares. The class B shares have 10 to 1 voting rights. And so if who gets those 100, it would be the team that started the project. and. The reason I think this is kind of interesting is the the reason that the class B shares are popular is they're primarily popular amongst founder-led tech companies. And why is that is because the founder needs to maintain some level of control over the vision in order to get that company to a stabilized state. No crypto protocols are in a stabilized state. They all decentralize too early. Yeah. And they decentralize too early and then what happens is that protocol fails to achieve its vision. I think MakerDAO has accomplished a lot of stuff, but they're a good example of this. They have a lot of bloat, overpaid employees, things move very slowly. And ultimately, had you given MakerDAO the autonomy to really operate that as a a business, I think they could have gotten much further. And I actually would say, to even maybe give a spicier take, Solana and its fairly centralized decision-making has made leaps and bounds on the technical front relative to Ethereum's decentralized approach. There's a whole other side of that equation, obviously, but I think that that's kind of interesting. And so could you create a scenario where you have a new standard where governance tokens give that team governance power without giving them economic value, like outsized economic value, so they can continue to drive that vision forward without worrying about like losing control and having this bloated vehicle that you know is just basically getting robbed by all these individuals coming and making governance proposals and so on and the key is that that power is only governance power because if I ultimately want to sell my shares the only way that I'm going to be able to do it is an ERC20 it's very unlikely that you're going to find some OTC buyer for the NFT side and the second I sell those shares I burn that low token ID and I get a regular token ID a regular just Class A share, basically. So I think that's pretty cool. You could basically maintain mm-hmm. control of the team, launch a token, realize the vision, get something to true escape velocity beyond the way people think about crypto projects, but actual escape velocity to the degree of like a large tech company equivalent, And then you can give up relinquished control once that vision has actually been realized. Right. It's so something you were thinking about and it's not like... We're definitely going to do this, but that concept, like as you start to iterate on those ideas, there's a lot of interesting things you can do with the four hundred four that you couldn't do with just like a standard ERC twenty in the context of a governance token.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. I had had not considered that use case, and it's made possible because an ERC four hundred four can either be an ERC seven twenty one or an ERC twenty, but it can't be both at the same time. So as you said, you When you switch, you basically have to burn and then mint the other one. And so that ability... Now, would there be a risk of... And also, I I just actually have to say first, I completely agree with this. I believe in decentralization. All of our listeners do. I think everybody in crypto believes in decentralization. But I also know, as a multiple-time founder, that you do not achieve quick decision-making and growth and productivity when you start with decentralization. It is actually heavy and slow and very challenging, especially when you're dealing with internet strangers who are all around the world and work in different time zones. And now I got to coordinate all you and figure out how to get you all to make
1: decisions together. Like, no thank you, right? So yeah, most of those people don't want to vote anyway. And if you really are unhappy, they can vote with their feet and sell their shares, you know, sell their tokens. And then that that's enough. I mean, that drives enough of a decision actually. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. So you said you're not sure if you're going to do this. Why wouldn't you do it? What are the risks? Uh, legal risks. I think probably one of the biggest challenges with this concept is it inherently is a centralizing force. And so are you then going to run it, you know, have problems with sec or something because you can't make the argument that this is a sufficiently decentralized now i think that i think there is still an argument to be made and and the point is that the economic value is not different and so from an economic standpoint you do not own 51 percent of the network or whatever i think that's the key i think that's why you could could possibly do this but that would be the probably the gating factor i mean when we ultimately do launch uh, a token, it won't be through a U.S. entity or anything like that. And so we're trying to do all the best practices you can possibly do. But still, like that's probably the main reason why you wouldn't.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, SEC and American Regulation, for making things way more difficult than it needs to be. We're just trying to innovate here. Come on, like jump on board. Help us out. You got Gary going on. What was he on the other day? Uh, yesterday was on CNBC and said that Bitcoin isn't decentralized. I mean, he just can't take the L, Gary. Just go home, man. Like, go pick another battle with somebody else, please.
1: It's, yeah, it's really hard to be a crypto founder because it's like, come on, man. You think that we don't have enough of a high bar to cross? Like, If we get hacked, then it's just game over. All the money's gone. We'll never be in business. Every KPI of our business is entirely public. Some guy can make a dune dashboard, show the whole world whether or not we're doing a good job and just be totally accurate or not. Like we already operate under the highest standard possible expectations and it's not from regulators. It's from the people that are in this space and the fact that it's all permissionless. And then you add on top of that, you know, all this regulatory hate and like all these people in Congress just saying you guys are all scammers and criminals. And it's like, man, it's a tough industry. (laughs) so tough. It's so tough. I really empathize with
0: founders like yourself. Not to mention when you do launch a token, now you also have a whole bunch of shareholders and I'll put that in air quotes who are yelling at you constantly on Discord and on Twitter for not making their price go up when they don't understand really what you're trying to do and what you're trying to build. You know, it's being a crypto founder. It's like being a, a founder of a public company and a founder of a startup at the same time. Well, everything is also on chain and can be accessed by anybody. I mean, it's just, yeah, it takes, it
1: takes big balls. So kudos to you. David and your other like the protocol, at least it's fully permissionless. And that's something that not everyone can say, you know, everyone will claim, but I can actually like academically defend that this protocol does not need me or anyone to work properly and neither will the governance token, right? I mean, for all intents and purposes, we'll have some admin fee that you can turn on if we wish, but, or if, if the token holders wish. But like, there's nothing centralizing in any aspect of that. I mean, even on front end stuff, like you don't need us to host a front end. And in fact, the goal here will be to proliferate this set of smart contracts so much that you're just going to interact with these pools on all these other platforms, like the watches platform and all of that. And so like, that's a good feeling for sure from the legal side of things to know that this actually functions as, as it should, as a truly permissionless all those
0: yeah yeah kudos to you and the team it's super impressive what you guys have built and you've done it in so many of the right ways before we we wrap up here i just want to give you a chance to uh tell people where they can follow you on twitter tell people where they can learn more about meta street we'll obviously put links in the show notes but the floor is yours to give any shill that you would like
1: yeah twitter at connor underscore more or metastreet is at metastreet.xyz I would just encourage people to like follow us, hop in the discord. We are insanely responsive. So, you know, if people just want to come in and have no clue how anything works and ask questions and get tailored responses. Like we like doing that. So we just want people to like explore this space, get excited about it the way we are excited about it and excited about kind of the potential here and ultimately become users and like earn a lot of yields. Ideally, you know, we want to create products that make people money. So we're totally open book.
0: Awesome. Okay. We always like to finish with uh, a speed round, just some fun, personal questions. Sometimes I let our guests prep for this, but you didn't get a chance to prep. So this is really off the cuff. Hey, First of all, uh, since since you're an an NFT5 platform, I got to ask the obvious is, is there any NFTs that you have that you
1: would never sell? I have a a soulbound KYC token that I cannot... (laughs) <laughs> which is a plan for a platform called quadrata which i think very highly of they're doing kyc off chain and then creating a soulbound token which ultimately means you can do stuff like unsecured credit which is something that we are also exploring and want to do but no i i have like some co and buff buffy corns from eat denver and that kind of thing like all very event-driven collectibles david and and ivan both the, my co-founders have multiple crypto punks but i don't have a crypto punk or anything like that but yeah Probably just the random event-driven collectibles. Cool. <laughs> okay, one prediction for twenty twenty-four. Definitely Bitcoin all-time highs. I think That's in this in twenty twenty-four, you think? Yeah, for sure. I'm pretty bullish on Farcaster. I think Farcaster will end up doing super well, and I think that between Meta Street, Arcade, NiftyFi, these NFT platforms, a big part of narrative and conversation within crypto is whether or not there's something to speculate on. To date, there has not really been. I think with all of these platforms kind of reaching that DAO stage, that decentralization stage, and hopefully launching governance tokens, you're going to see a lot more conversation about this stuff. Mm. And a lot of people also will make that same leap that we've made of, it's not just crypto punks, it's not just these, you know, art NFTs, but there's still in the blank other things and getting excited about that.
0: So is... Is this gonna be NFT Fi summer? We've had DeFi summer.
1: Yeah. Is that what's coming? It will be NFT Fi summer.
0: I love that. I love that. I'll, I'll start pushing that narrative as well. Okay, last question. If you had a billboard that one billion people were going to see, what would you write on it?
1: I think it would be something around just being like self-sovereign and owning your own, you know, your own future, owning your own assets. I really feel like in today's day and age, this is becoming extremely topical crypto has become extremely bipartisan. There's all sorts of implications of freedom associated with it. It's impossible to be in this space and not feel strongly about that. And actually fascinating to see such a strong ethos within an industry. Like Previously in my life, I've not experienced that. So I think that's really fascinating. So I think it would be something to that effect, like the importance of self-sovereignty, the importance of freedom, of control of your own money, and just like recognizing that this is for the best. This is decentralized approach to life is a better version of life for you and for your family. It's a long billboard, but I'm with you. We'll, we'll we'll go run
0: it through the marketing team and get them to, you know, tighten it up a bit. But yeah, it's it's so true. Like self-custody is really the underlying connection across all of blockchain and crypto. And doesn't matter what revolution you're talking about that we are creating within this space, whether you call it Web3 or crypto or blockchain, whatever term you use to bucket it all together, you know, self-custody is that base layer, of all of this. And whether it's money or it's data, there is so much advantage to self-custody that I think we've gotten so used to not having self-custody. It's almost like we're blind to this fact that, hey, we don't control our shit. We don't own our own stuff. And like, that's a big problem. We're only starting to see those problems take more place in the past decade. But yep. yeah, I think, I, I completely agree. Like, I don't know, maybe it says, you know, take custody of your shit or something like that.
1: Yeah. That was just my chat Gbt prompt for my four-letter billboard post. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Connor, just an
0: absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Shout out to you and the team at Medistry for everything you guys are building. Really excited to follow along. Hope our listeners participate in Ascend and take advantage of that points program. I think we'll have to have you back on in a year or something like that when, as you said, more of these real world assets come on that might lead to the big explosion that we're talking about.
1: Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. I you know, it's like these projects raise money. It still takes them two years to launch, but so many of them are here now and and they're right at the cost of launching. So very exciting. Rock on, my man. Thanks so much for listening and everybody. Have a great day. Thank you for
0: listening to Web3 Academy, your one trusted source to capitalize on the next big phase of the internet. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it and subscribe or follow so that you don't miss the next one. While you're at it, there's a link in the description for our free newsletter where we provide timely and relevant Web3 insights so you can confidently build and invest in Web3. Make sure to subscribe today. One final note. This podcast is for educational purposes only and nothing we say is financial advice. Crypto and Web3 are risky and you should never invest more than you're willing to lose. Thank you, friends, and see you in the next one.